Welcome to Arconnect Sessions, episode 36. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week, we'll be sharing our conversation with Thomas Hirschman and Anthony Murray of the Toronto-based The Third Fate, a design studio that leverages emerging technologies to preserve and activate the built environment. We also have Brian Newman, our legal correspondent, joining us to talk about the news of the deadly collapsed balcony in Berkeley that has been getting a fair bit of attention among the commenters on Arconnect. Amelia, how's your week? Not too shabby. Dealing with insane California heat and just trying to keep cool in my very much old and not air-conditioned apartment. But yeah, I hear actually, Donna, there's a crazy flooding happening in Indianapolis right now. We're getting so much rain. It's unbelievable. And the landscape is beautiful because everything is really lush. It's almost like a jungle in my backyard. But yes, I live about 300 feet from the White River and uh, I'm a little nervous. It's getting quite high. I, though, went down to Kentucky last week and had some terrible rainstorms on the way down to Kentucky. Also, I think all of the Midwest is just having lots of storms. I went down to Kentucky and gave a talk at the Governor's School for the Arts, which is the architecture program for high school students that I used to teach at. And I adjusted my talk a little. I showed some of the stuff that I also showed at AIA National. But I'm focusing on this idea of how cities tell stories to us and how we tell stories through the things that we build, be they buildings or be they, you know, painting a graffiti penis around a pothole, as we had a story on our Connect a while ago about. But then I was reading reading an essay by Daniel Liebskin today, and I am not the biggest fan of Daniel Liebskin's work by any means, but he said this sentence in it that I loved, and I just wanted to share it. In great cities, the great buildings tell you things you don't know and remember things that you've forgotten. I just think that's really nice. And it dovetails exactly with how I've been trying to explain to people this notion that the culture builds the city and the city tells stories back to us. So yeah, I just thought that was a neat quote. Ken, you are familiar with my not especially great relationship with Leapskin's work, but uh, how is how is your week? How's your work going? Oh, it's it's going pretty well. I'm going out to bid with the Butcher's Project this end of this week, going out for permitting early next week, busy picking out floor tile, which is a, it's a fun process to pick out really expensive Italian floor tile, even though it's going in a 200 square foot <laughs> deli area. Because price isn't really an issue at that point. It was going to have tile anyway, and it's going to have tile now. It's just, who cares if it costs $5 a square foot when you only have 200 square feet of it? Excellent. <laughs> so, so that's kind of been my week. Paul, what do you got going on? Uh, not much. Oh, I found some sunken treasure on the weekend. <laughs> just just a Along few doubloons. <laughs> I, was, I was scuba diving off the coast of Catalina Island, and I found a $5 bill at the bottom of the ocean <laughs> with little fish bites. Yeah. That was my highlight of the week. With mafia blood on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was attached to a leg. <laughs> Going from your Facebook feed, did like was it a moray eel that handed it to you? The moray popped his head out of the, the hole and <laughs> you had to grab the $5 bill out of his mouth. Um, no, I, I managed to find it before the moray did. But after many little fish, because there's little fish bites all over it. It's pretty, no. it's pretty cute. <laughs> All right. So speaking of money, should we talk about poor doors? <laughs> yes. Nice transition. Instead of little fish nibbling at a mere $5 uh, bill, it's all of the affordable housing participants wishing to nibble at the doors of the more... Of the, speaking of fancy Italian tile, Ken, you know, that's going to be found in the lobbies of the non-poor door entrances of these buildings. That's right. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. So for those who are not familiar with the phenomenon of these so-called poor doors, a very unfortunate term that no doubt some 
newspaper person invented some newspaper person um, (laughs) (laughs) in order to uh, convey the idea of a separate entrance for affordable housing units in an otherwise market rate apartment building. So in, in one particular, there's one building in New York City where this case has kind of become galvanized and people have become very angry to see the developer take advantage of this one particular loophole in the tax incentive built into New York. Building laws that allows developers to create separate entrances for the market rate and for the affordable housing units in the same apartment building. So we've been following this on Arconnect and we've had a few prior posts on the development of it and people's various upsurges of outrage. And now recently, thanks to a provision signed by current New York Mayor uh, Bill de Blasio, it is no longer legal to take advantage of the loophole in this way where you actually build physically separate entrances for the different tenants. But of course, even though that's now you know legally taken care of, um, so to speak, the conversation around discriminatory design is still ongoing. And we've I've been really impressed and excited about the conversation going on in the most recent news post we've made on Arconnect of seeing how people are kind of tackling this issue and doing so in a very self-aware way, taking into account their own presumptions about what constitutes fair design and what is really at stake here and whether this is really something we should be angry about or whether we have the right to be angry about it or um, what its stakes are for larger discriminatory design issues. And Donna, in particular, I was really impressed with your continued involvement in this discussion and how you are really taking a strong look at your own automatic stance and your own um, potential knee-jerk reactions to this kind of news and really trying to figure out where that's coming from, what your ideas are around this and whether you think that it's something that we should continue talking about or whether it's really a big deal or not. So do you feel any more resolved <laughs> on any of those things now as you, than you did um, while the, taking the course of those comments? You know, my reaction to these kinds of things is typically to be deeply against any kind of segregation or separation based on economy or anything that makes the lives of especially the working poor that much worse. But when I think about living in one of these buildings, my first thought was, well, I wouldn't want to walk into this super fancy lobby with all these doormen and these snooty rich people. So I would much rather take this back door that I don't have to deal with those people. And then I just started really questioning my own my own middle class privilege that as a middle class white woman, I can easily imagine myself interacting with these wealthy, snooty people in many different ways, and that not having to see them when I go in my front door would be a relief. But that's my privilege talking, because for many, many people, they don't have that option to, they don't have the luxury of choosing whether to avoid certain people or not. And I just am really analyzing my own privilege around this issue. My biggest thought on it, and I think a lot of the posters have been really helpful in helping me think about how this appears to people who are not middle-class white professional women. But my biggest takeaway from it still is overall the notion of making sure that lower and middle-class people can still afford to live in Manhattan. That to me is such an important social issue that the notion of a separate door becomes less important to me. It seems like that's a small detail within a much bigger good move, in my opinion. Now, Ken, you've been very noticeably silent on all of these the discussion going on on this. I, I'm really curious to hear your take on it, if I'm not putting you on the spot too much. No, you're you're not. And and I could do a soliloquy about this topic. It would be <laughs> a little bit rambling like a Chris Christie soliloquy. But it, it's interesting because... I was poor. I have lived in a two-room shack with my three siblings and my mother. I have been on public assistance. So when I see people who are well-intentioned talking about this topic, they have no idea what they're talking about. And I was talking to 
to Linda tonight about it. I said, you know, I said, there's nothing more painful than being invisible to a large group of the aristocracy that exists in our country, yet feeling completely like you're attracting the most egregious looks and attention. That You're the most appalling thing to exist when you're the poor. And so on the one hand, you're invisible, but on the other hand, you're this loudest, you're the loudest thing in the room. And it doesn't, it doesn't quite make sense for a lot of people, but for those who have been, you know, I, it was interesting because just before this topic got posted on, it was the first time I saw it this time around was on Facebook. And I saw it because Susan Surface, one of an Arconnect regular, she's working on a project right now, an invitation for an email talking with other architects about how to work with a community. And the tone of the email was essentially that it was a kind of a one-sided conversation where you get the sense that the design professionals would prefer to deal with other design professionals and experts and not deal with the actual end user. Why? Because they're getting stuff. So why should they matter? And that's kind of what I see in the comments yeah. about around this particular issue is that, hey, they get a place to live. Why the fuck do I got to pay attention to what they have to say? Well, pardon me, but I, I can pretty much bet you that the developer did not engage with local community groups. I didn't read this and I could be wrong. I could be completely off base, but I can't imagine a local community group saying we're going to represent our constituency. And yeah, sure. A poor door is fine. The, the poor people are fine with that poor door, a separate entry. Yeah. Yeah. As long as they get a place to live, they're fine with that. We can pretty much guarantee that the conversation went like this. Yeah, I have to conform to the city code, but you know what? I don't really give a shit about what those people think because they really don't matter. They're not the one paying for this building. They're the ones who are getting subsidized, right? So they don't matter. They're invisible. So this really cements and it just, just articulates in a very architectural way what the rich really think about the poor. They are invisible. They are non-existent. They are not worth caring about. They're only worth the service they provide me. And if they have a separate entry, fine. I don't care. The better I don't see them, the easier it is for me to forget that they exist. So on the one hand, it's important that we get housing in New York City for those who need it. But it's also important to remember that those people are people. They have a voice and they should be engaged and they should be, be part of this discussion and not kicked around between us cultural elites who kind of stand on the sidelines and, and debate whether or not is it good. Yeah, they got a home, they got a place to live, but eh, is a poor door okay? Sure. Yeah, it's okay. But anybody ask any of the poor people if that they thought that was okay? I guarantee that didn't happen. And like I said, I can go on and on. But I know what it's like. <laughs> I really, I mean, I do. And it just, it sucks. I mean, it just, this, this whole idea sucks. What I want to know is specifically how the transition just from a pure design sense happens from the street to the different units. Because we've seen cases like this before that aren't necessarily manifest in the design of the entrances, but in other add-ons to a mostly market rate development that will then upgrade itself and add more amenities that are only accessible to the market rate tenants and not to the affordable tenants in the household. There was a case about this that I, I think someone called uh, deemed 
fitness apartheid based on the fact that this new fitness center was going in into a old building that had a lot of tenants that were there under rent control departments and were beneficiaries of affordable housing. And they were coexisting with the market rate tenants in a more or less equal building. Like the building didn't have any specialized structural and parts of it that distinguish between market rate and affordable housing other than the actual quality of the rooms or the size of the rooms, say. That building got an upgrade in the, in the way of a fitness center that had certain security on it that would not allow the affordable housing tenants to access it. And of course, people were up in arms about this, not simply because they wanted to use the center or not, but that they were not even given the choice of being able to decide for themselves to pay a rate to use the fitness center. So what makes me a little bit hesitant about even discussing these issues like a poor door is that we know so little about what ex exactly is actually going on on the street. Is the quality of these different entrances like remarkably different in such a way that it is demeaning for a certain group to be to be accessing one of them are they actually serving different purposes or different functions that directly relate to the amount of money that the person is otherwise paying to inhabit that building say like i believe this was brought up in the thread like say certain service personnel that require that where there's a tip expected like are they being deployed in both the areas for the market rate and for the affordable housing tenants so what are the actual actual implications here for the real process of going into the building. Again, I, I have to preface this because I don't see the plans of the building and I don't have them in front of me, so I can't be for certain. But the idea of a separate entry, it's not just leading a person into a different entry. It's not like there's a, you know, they're going up a common core elevator. I would imagine at a building of this kind of thing where you have a separate entry that Generally, you would assume that this kind of thing would have essentially a firewall running up the entire length of the building. And on one side of that firewall, you have these small apartments or SROs or whatever it is. And on the other side, you have these very decked out, palatial, well-finished Italian, you know, finishes condos. Then you have to ask yourself, well, why is that? What is gained by putting a group of people on one side of the building and a group of people on the other side of the building? You're separating not just the entries, you're separating people. That's my take on it. I mean, I don't think it's just about how you get into the building, but what is actually created. It's essentially two buildings. Which is otherwise people don't necessarily riot about or protest about the idea of a whole housing unit for affordable housing, which was also the technical part of the loophole of this previous law that allowed the corridors to come into existence at all, was that they could get tax incentives if they developed affordable housing units, even if that those units were in a separate building. So it's totally a tricky area. And I know, Donna, in particular, you were attacking this issue from the perspective of, like, what is the actual intent of these affordable housing laws and, and um, incentives? And whether or not situations like this actually compromise those intents and whether those intentions are as strong or as powerful as they should be to be able to actually encourage the type of economic mixing or however you want to call it in an urban situation. So it's not like if you're going to look at it from the course of whether or not this is strictly legal, now we know the answer is, well, no, it's not. But whether or not it should be allowed because it actually might not compromise the overall intention, that's another question entirely. Well, it seems to me like the biggest intention and what I keep thinking about is the fact that downtowns are becoming more and more unaffordable and more and more less wealthy people are being pushed to the edges. And that means to get to their crappy service job downtown, they have to have a two hour commute on a train or whatever. You know, it seems to me like the part of the whole idea is to let people live 
all within the same neighborhoods and not have to have this commute that goes forever and not have to be very working really far away from where you live. And then in the balance of being able to not have to commute for two hours a day versus not being able to go to the gym that's on the 50th floor of this building because, you know, and it's got a great view, but that pales in comparison to me. That It seems to me that the trade-off of a commute for not being allowed to use the gym is an easy one to make. But again, I'm coming from a point of view that typically if I want to join a gym, I do. I can. I can afford to. So, Ken, I mean, I I understand what you're saying about invisibility somewhat. Certainly not, you know, the closest I can connect to it is that male contractors don't like having me on the construction site and they tend to not address questions or answers to me. But that's very, very different. But overall, this notion that we can have people live downtown, close to their jobs, without having to do this long commute. Density is great. I think density should be happening. And so the overall intent to me seems like it's important. You know, I think what it comes down to at the end of the day is, have the users been respected, right? Will they be respected? I can almost envision that given how developers fulfill the intent of the law or the law, the legal portion of their requirements, and then the intent of the law in the sense that well, does the rich side get a high-end service contract with that portion of the building? The users who are in the rich side of the building, do they get a better community agreement for property management so that the other side is waiting like a typical tenement apartment building would wait for, let's say, servicing the elevator? So the other side, those people complain because, wait a second, I paid $4 million for this apartment or for this condo. My elevator better goddamn well work. And a person on the other side of the building who has an elevator that works maybe 30% of the day, and they just go, well, you pay what? You can't even afford to go to the, you want to go to the health club in the building and you want your elevator to work? Yeah, we'll we'll get out there (laughs) when we get out there. So it really is about whether or not the people who build these buildings and ultimately sell them off and to people who run those buildings respect the people that live there. And I think when you start to treat people separately and understand that, you know, that the commute is sucks because we won't pay for the kinds of trans assistance we need to deliver people. So we have the poor are actually no longer in the cities because we've priced them out of the cities. The poor are moving to the suburbs in the most, for the most part. So now we're shifting that burden to another community that's going to be then shifting it again. I mean, we have a history here. We have a record. We can see where this is going. And we can't be like hammering down on the 1% and hope that they have some benevolent intent <laughs> here. Their purpose is to grind and make the money grind up the bones to make the bread and and make sure that the people who they don't want to see aren't seen and they're not respected. I, I just fundamentally believe that if you don't have the power in your hands and you don't have the money with which we know now is necessary to have speech in this country, you're not going to be treated with respect unless you get a mayor like this guy who's saying, screw that, we're going to change the law. And I don't buy this idea. He's recently slammed the governor of the state of New York. That, And I don't buy this idea that there's going to be some mass flight of money going out of New York. That's a bunch of horse shit that I can't even believe that people will actually entertain. But I hear it routinely, like somehow the developers aren't going to build apartment buildings in New York City. Well, that's bull. I mean, they're going to continue to build and they'll just have to conform the way they've always had to conform. There used to be a 
time in this country where people who had money actually cared about the bottom half of the country. They actually saw the poverty. They lifted people up. They cared about the people who were doing things for them. And now there isn't anyone who actually cares about those people anymore. They don't care. Now we have an articulation. Like I said, we have an articulation in an architectural form of exactly how they feel about us. And this building is, is a representation of where we're going. I mean, we're not there yet. And, you know, and the Marxists want to kind of like clamor. And I'm like, yeah, but w w no one's really fed up. And this kind of starts to make people a little bit more fed up. So in doing research for this discussion, I went back to a previous article written about the Portor phenomenon in from 2014 that kind of compared the affordable housing, inaction of affordable housing policies in New York City under Bloomberg versus de Blasio. And there was this one great article from the New York Observer that explains how affordable housing units are even quantified, how you decide whether something qualifies as affordable housing and how it's based on the average median income in that area. And in under Bloomberg, this article is explaining that most of the new affordable housing units were priced around the percentage of families making around 50% of the median income, which was like this, the Observer article quotes around 85K a year. So that's for a family of four, a median, average median income is around $85,000 in New York City. That was in 2013. Now the actual Based on what we've seen, the the AMI, the average median income that the affordable housing units are tailored towards, is not 50% of that AMI. It's now upwards of 175%, which the observer quotes is around $105,000 for an individual, single person, <laughs> qualifying for affordable oh housing God. in New York City, and $150,000 for a family of four. And the article, I think we'll post it to our show notes because it's, it's not it's not the freshest article, but it's um, very prescient to this conversation. And it basically explains how this physical representation that we have of discriminatory design is so powerful to people and so reminiscent of obvious and really just awful segregation policies of prior American history that we can't help but see this as completely deplorable and uh, like absolutely not OK. And in fact, at least as this Observer article points out, that that may distract from the overall difficulties of what is actually going on with housing and affordable housing in particular in New York City. So I think that, I mean, always when you're talking about New York City, you're talking about a bit of a unicorn case because things are not always, it, it sets a strange bar. But I think that this particular scenario has brought up so much interesting discussion of having to deal with a heritage of discriminatory design in the context of a different form of economic discrimination that we see in New York City. So does anyone else have something to add? Well, if I can jump in on that, actually, Amelia, that does help me. That That's actually a really good sort of broad view of it, that the fact that the, they changed this rule, this law, any kind of, I guess I have to feel optimistic about any kind of rule change that addresses the fact that we have discrimination that exists in our built environment, that exists in our economic system, and that we have to be more fair than we have been, that's always a good outcome. So, you know, again, when I fantasize about living in New York City, I, I feel like I have, I approach it from a certain viewpoint, but overall, the notion that that we need to be fairer to everyone in our society is a great one and is is always is always good news. So that's the silver lining of this whole discussion for me. Hmm. And we're definitely going to keep an eye on how these things kind of, what the fallout for these types of decisions are, because yes, again, this is an isolated case, but of course, as we see things happening in New York, they definitely have repercussions throughout the country and, and other places in the world. Shall we move on to our, um, our next, more, a little bit more on the other side of the country? We're going to revisit a recent news item that has been ongoing regarding the tragic balcony collapse that killed six people in Berkeley a few weeks ago. We caught up with Brian Newman, architect's 
legal correspondent to check in about the ongoing investigation and um, what the legal recourse is after at this point for all the public entities involved, the architects, the property management company, as well as the actual victims' families. So let's talk to Brian. So over the past couple of weeks, we've been watching the development of a particularly tragic case out of Berkeley where a balcony collapse in a relatively new apartment building in downtown Berkeley led to the death of a handful of Irish students that were living in the building and also other places in the Bay Area for the summer. It's been a really difficult and tragic story to watch because it's just such a drastic case where this balcony just completely rotted away that they found dry rot in the wood that was supporting the balcony and the entire thing, despite having been completely up to code and should have been totally fine up to withstanding uh, much heavier weights, gave way and people dropped over five stories, I believe. So we've been watching the coverage come in about this case and the ongoing investigation, trying to figure out not only exactly what happened, but where it went wrong along the way and who exactly is culpable. So we have Brian Newman, our Connect Sessions legal correspondent on the line to uh, talk with us about this case and what its implications are for architectural practice. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Millie. It's great to be here. So, and you're also, you, you're from Berkeley, is that correct? I am, born and raised. I was there uh, 22 years. Oh, yeah. So you probably have a pretty good idea of like the layout of the of the downtown Berkeley area where this took place. And I think what's particularly tragic about this case is how new the building was. We know it was completed in 2007 or 2008. And so this level of damage that had to come about for this level of failure to occur is pretty unprecedented. And so at this point, mostly through coverage from the Los Angeles Times that we've been following, the investigation as to what exactly went wrong is no longer being pursued by Berkeley's Building and Safety Department. They have not been able to identify exactly what went wrong. They know that dry rot is to blame and that there was some water leaking issue. But according to the plans, everything was up to code and they just haven't given a precise solution as to what is going wrong. They are proposing a few code changes to try to prevent things like this from happening in the future. However, it's it's kind of unclear whether those will ever be able to actually prevent the exact same situation from ever happening again. So because at this point, the Berkeley Building and Safety Division has stopped investigating the case, there's still news that the property management company involved that managed the building is going to investigate with an independent structural engineer. So, Brian, what exactly is the property management company's liability in this scenario? Well, it's a great question. What you have here, it's really a case of a, a legal hot potato. That's what I'd call it, because you're, you're going to have all these different parties who can potentially be sued. And, and what you'll you'll see in all likelihood is, is all of them trying to pass the buck to the next person down the line. So at the top of the list here, you have the, the owner of the property, which is BlackRock, which is a real estate investment trust based in New York City, multi-billion dollar fund, you know, very deep pocket. And as the owner of the building, they're, they're going to be an obvious target. Then you have the property property management company. Then you have the developer of the property, which was a company called uh, Transaction Companies, uh, which developed it in 2007, 2008. Then you have the general contractor, which is a company called Segway Construction. And then you have the architect, which is a Thomas P. Cox architect. And then even beyond that, you have the, the subcontractors. You have the steel contractor, you have in all likelihood concrete contractors. So you're going to have a situation where all these different parties who could potentially be liable would probably be named in a lawsuit and would all essentially be trying to pass a liability onto the next party down the line. With respect to the property management company, it's probably a smart move for them to do their own independent investigation because what they'd like to show is that to the extent there there was you know either design defect or construction defect, that this was something that, that they could not reasonably have been aware of. And so there was no negligence on their part because uh, it, it was essentially a latent defect, something as a, as a manager of the building they didn't know about and couldn't know about. 
And so in the event that they're sued, they would have the ability to file their own cross-complaint against either the general contractor or, or one of the subcontractors. And the original investigation was being headed by the, the public department, Berkeley's Building and Safety Division. And after the accident happened, not only were they investigating the, the tragedy, but they were also the ones that initially signed off on the building to be able to be constructed. And there have been a few, there's been a, a Berkeley um, independent lawyer in Berkeley who has kind of identified this as a conflict of interest. Do you agree with that? Do you think this really is a conflict of interest on the public department's case? Well, it certainly could be. And I, I think the issue here is, and this is something not, not particular to the city of Berkeley, but to municipalities all over the country. And the issue is, you know, where you have the same entity which issues the license is the entity which investigates the accidents. In this case, the Berkeley Department of Building and Safety. So, you know, the two, two different issues. I mean, the first issue is whether it was uh, appropriate to issue this permit in the first place and whether the, uh, the standards that was issued under, which I think was, you know, 60 pounds per square feet, which was the code back in 1988, which was the old code standard, you know, whether that was the appropriate building standard. And for the time, it, it probably was, even though today it's a little bit higher. The second question is, you know, whether this entity is, is equipped to investigate the accident. And, um, you know, in this case, they probably have resources to perform the investigation, but they probably have limitations on those resources. So the question is going to be, and it sounds like this has already come up, is they've done their preliminary investigation, they found some dry rot, but do they really have both the, the will and the, uh, the ability to dig deeper without you know, more, uh, more money, more time, more inspectors at their disposal? This is kind of where the legal process comes in, in that uh, with the, the families of all these victims and, of course, all these different parties who are likely to be sued, some of them very wealthy, they're probably going to step in and essentially take over and say, OK, we're going to do our own investigation and reach our own conclusions. So I'd say that the investigation performed by the Berkeley Department of Building and Safety, it's a good starting place and certainly you know, could come to the, 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 the correct answer. But it's certainly not the end of, of what's going to happen here, especially in a, in a multi-million dollar case like this. And so five of the six victims of this of the balcony collapse happened to be Irish citizens visiting the Bay Area on a specific work visa, J-1 visa, which is a very common occurrence in the Bay Area during summertime. There's, there's a long history of Irish citizens coming to visit on that visa, specifically to the Bay Area during the summer months. And it's that relationship has already been established. And partially because of that, this has become not only international news, but very hard hitting news in Ireland. What exactly are the legal recourses for for the families of the Irish citizens who were victims of this case? Well, in all likelihood, they'd be filing a lawsuit here in California. Since the accident happened here in California, even though they're not American citizens, they would certainly have the ability to hire a local attorney and file a lawsuit in, in Alameda County where the accident occurred. As far as you know, other options, they could presumably sue some of these defendants where they're based. For example, BlackRock is based in New York City. To the extent any of these, these entities actually did business in, in Ireland, they could, I suppose, try to sue them there. But the most logical venue would be to, to sue them in, in Alameda County Superior Court. You know, In fact, there's a courthouse right near where, where this accident occurred. So at this point, what do you think is going to be the next move on the case of um, the public department? Do they have any more obligations in this case to follow up on the case? Well, as far as the case, once the case is considered closed from their point of view, they don't they don't have any legal obligation. Now, what they may have is, is essentially a, a political obligation in that the citizens of Berkeley may be so upset about this that they may demand, you know, more answers in terms of the investigation of this property and this accident. Or more specifically, they may demand increased building codes and, and an inspection of existing buildings built according to the same standards and with potentially these same dry rot issues in the balconies. So I think um, legally they don't they don't have to do anything else. But realistically, with a huge event like this and with the type of public outcry, they probably are going to stay on the, on the issue. And if not do more work on this case, at least do more work with regard to similar types of uh, similar types of construction, similar types of potential accidents to, to ensure that this doesn't happen again. Hey, Brian, this is uh, Ken. Um, just a 
quick thing. What I understand, and I always forget the term how, how this is described. So as an architect who's practicing in Minnesota, the expectation is not that I'm perfect, but that my detailing is reasonably acceptable or is acceptable within my region as a basic standard of, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's basic standard of care or that I basically comport myself and detail according to my region. So that, you know, if I go to California and try to practice architecture, I'd have to be licensed in California, but that I couldn't use the same kinds of detailing that I would do in Minnesota and California. So I think the one question is, can you talk to that a little bit about what is the reasonable expectation that, that the public has around the design professional when it comes to issues like this? Do they have to achieve a, a certain level of perfection or do they have to design within a certain region specific practice? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. I do. It's a good question. I, the answer is, it certainly doesn't have to be perfect. I think the standard you're talking about is essentially the, the reasonable standard of care for the geographic area in which you're practicing. And this is actually something that applies to doctors, it applies to lawyers, it applies to architects, it applies to all sorts of professionals. So uh, the issue vis-a-vis -vis an architect practicing in, in Berkeley, for example, there'd be a couple issues. One would be, you know, was the architecture work performed up to uh, any sort of legal standards, meaning building standards, code standards, that type of thing, you know, uh, instituted by the Berkeley Department of Building and Safety and other institutions. So that, that would be sort of the threshold question. If, if, if the designs fell below those thresholds, then that would be almost like a, what you call in the law a race ipsa loquitur, like a, a prima facie case of, of some sort of architectural negligence. Um, beyond that, however, you know, something can be up to code, but still be, you know, below potentially a reasonable standard. If it looks like everyone else who's building the same type of building, same type of project is doing something different, especially in a, in a safety area, which may be above and beyond what's required by the code, but is considered, you know, to be the norm for this type of project. So I think it's a much more troubling case for the architect if the uh, the architect's designs fall below some sort of legal requirement. But, you know, even if they pass the legal requirement, if there's some sort of safety feature that all sorts of similar buildings and similar projects would have expected to be had, and this one didn't, then that could potentially open up the architect to some sort of liability. This is Donna. I just have a, a little bit of a comment that it relates to what Ken just asked. One of the comments I made on the discussion thread was that the balcony in this case was made out of wood, and then it was it was covered underneath. So it had a finished stucco or, or some kind of board sheathing underneath. So you couldn't see the wood members. And I made the comment that I think in California now, there are very strict rules around fireproofing of residential construction. I don't know if they applied in this particular building back when it was built, but the whole notion of covering something to protect it from fire goes against the ability to then later inspect the construction to see if something like dry rot or leak is happening, right? So I just wondered if you had any comment about where bits of the building code or any other kind of codes conflict with one another and what's the architects is expected to put in the in the first priority. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. And, uh, and unfortunately, there's no easy answer to this. The, the answer is, especially when it comes to something like fire safety and the fire code, you know, the architect and, uh, and the contractor is going to be expected to, to make sure the building's up to code. Now, and, and by doing that, you're sacrificing other areas, you know, aesthetic things and potentially other safety areas. But I do think it would be a defense in the event that, that architectural negligence was claimed or uh, something against the contractor due to a particular design feature which was implemented based on, for example, the fire code. So if the code required the architect or the developer to put something in there and that was the cause of the, uh, the dry rot, well, then that's, that's a pretty good defense. And I think that the, the counter argument to that would be, you know, is, is there a way to safely implement the fire safety feature without compromising, for example, you know, the wood and the ability for moisture to leak in there and cause the dry rot? So is there, is there a workaround where you can accomplish both things or is it, does one necessarily preclude the other? In other words, if you make it fire safe, does it necessarily make it unsafe in terms of dry rot? And, and if so, 
then there may be nothing that the architect or the uh, the contractor could do, which would be a defense of the case. And at this point, there have been some already new rules proposed for checking in on building codes and making sure that they're still up to snuff after the building has already been constructed and inhabited, which are being introduced to Berkeley um, soon and might be and will be voted on in the middle of the July. And we'll see if those actually get adopted. And those do seem to be positive steps. They involve once every five years, the owners is, will be expected to inspect balconies, stairways and elevated decks. And they'll also might start enforcing vents to be installed underneath balconies, decks and stairs. And apparently this is this precedent isn't built just based off of this recent Berkeley incident. There have been other cases of balcony collapses in, in other parts of the Bay Area, including San Francisco. And perhaps this will otherwise push forward research into like, you know, maybe there's some climatological things to be considered as to how this somewhat special instance was allowed to happen to occur and um, what the ongoing investigation will tell us about how this came to be. Well, Brian? Thank you so much. It was great to have you on again and uh, hear your very sane and very helpful advice about these prickly legal issues. Okay. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks. All right. Well, we're definitely going to be following the legal status of this of this news item and uh, we'll be reporting about it on Arcanex. So we're uh, anxious to see how this issue unfolds. On to our next interview. We actually ran into Thomas Hirschman from The Third Fate when we were in Washington, D.C. to interview Bjarke Ingels for the exhibition at the National Building Museum. He was there providing virtual experience of Biggs maze that they had installed at the museum. We were quite impressed with the setup that they had, and we got talking with Thomas, and uh, we later connected with him on the podcast. So let's go listen to that conversation now. We could start out with you just telling us what Third Fate means. Where did that name come from? That's a bit of an interesting story. We kind of arrived at it through a, a long, circuitous route. You kind of have to go back to the beginning where we started. We started this company not actually that long ago, but the idea of it, we started early last year. And it actually arose out of a response to, well, to, to what was happening around us with technology. And Anthony and I sat down and we were, we were looking at all the different technologies that were emerging, you know, the virtual reality being core, one of the core ones. And, and we started to think about the notion of using these technologies to preserve the built environment. And right around the same time was when the folk art museum kerfuffle was happening. And so we actually, I mean, really, uh, there was there was nothing but an idea and a thought. But we we sort of reached out to a bunch of people down in New York. We spoke with with the architects, even of, of uh, Todd Williams and Billy Chen, and uh, corresponded with them anyway by email. And uh, the idea was we were hoping we could go down and actually do sort of this at the time cobbled together virtual preservation of the of the folk art museum and uh i mean that didn't come to fruition it just it was too late in the game and, and we couldn't really get through but uh but based on the response and some other conversations we had with people we kind of felt we were on to something and so we ended up sort of deciding we would we would start something we'd start a business around this and and the name itself i don't know how do we uh, it was kind of a process of like any name, you back and forth for a while. And, and I guess the third fate was this notion, you know, of that there was another alternative or something. I, I, it's sort of yeah. vague to me now, um, looking back on it. 
the again it all comes down to that third alternative what you can do when uh, something a scheme or our building within the within the built environment and also the third fate also comes from um, the three fates which is the greek gods of preservation so yeah. there's a little bit of a mythical tie-in there. yeah so um, yeah. You know, we like to keep ourselves uh, slightly ambiguous as well, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely a name that's not kind of of the typical sort that you hear these days. I kind of sometimes when I look back on it, it kind of reminds me of like a punk band name or something. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's intentional or not. <laughs> I don't that's think. Are thing. we trying to be punk or something? I don't know. Yeah, and the again, again, whenever you're talking about a, con- a company that specifically based is based around a specific kind of technology, like we do with the 360 virtual capture and so forth, as we'll talk about later. You know, we didn't want to go for something that was tech. You know, we wanted something which really, which really reflects our goals, which is about activation, preservation, and uh, and our passion for architecture in general. And so just to be clear, when you're talking about preservation, you're talking about the way that you are going to use the technology you use to record the space in its current status. How would you specify that in regards to documentation? How is the way you're approaching this this object and recording it as documentation versus preservation? How do you distinguish the two? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is there's sort of a a blurred line there. Um, And we do think both in terms of documentation and preservation. I, I, I guess the reality is like documentation to us. I mean, there's the notion of that. Um, we feel within, you know, implicit in what we're doing by by doing a capture using the 360 video or, you know, audio and things of that nature, we're, we're obviously documenting a space. But I think where it sort of moves into the realm of preservation is that these different technologies, you know, the, the 360 video capture, the binaural audio, there's even, and Anthony sometimes rolls his eyes when I get going on smell, but there's there's emerging science around smell. I don't know if you guys know the O phone where they they sent mm-hmm. last year. Uh, oh yeah, the first transatlantic scent. I was just reading today actually about a new technology that is trying to work with Alzheimer's patients by reminding them of mealtime with this device that emits smells of food. Yeah, that kind of stuff is fascinating, right? Like it's you know it's something that's really been under underrepresented in technology these you know for a long time, and it's it's really sort of exploding right now. But in terms of back to your question, the the preservation aspect. So if you take all these different aspects, you start to be able to build something that kind of moves beyond just documentation. Um, and, and and by no means are we we at, at a place where we can fully recreate the experience of a place, but we're on a trajectory that's kind of taking us along that path where, you know, between you know, having the the immersive video and the immersive sound and potentially smell and even touch, you know, being able to recreate touch, um, the tactile experience or the haptic experiences uh, are important as well. So if you add up all those different elements, you're you're moving in this direction where you're actually able to preserve the experience. So say, for example, if, you know, a structure is as, as many as happens with many you know, significant structures these days, they you know are no longer in fashion, or they're fighting you know political clout of some kind, and they're slated for demolition. You know, theoretically now, and 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 closer and closer in practice, we're able to actually preserve that experience of that place um, for future generations. And it and it moves beyond. I mean, we we also explore and and, and are playing with scanning. Um, you know, there's laser scanning, and which has been used in the industry for a long time. But of course, you know that's that's you know, also recording a space, but it's recording more of it from a data perspective. 
And we're much more experienced or interested in the experience of a place. So that's why like the film medium or the video medium itself is really compelling for us because it, it does, you know, just like a good film really stirs the emotions. So can, you know, the, the, this sort of immersive experience as well. You can actually feel like you're in a place, you hear the footsteps, you hear children laughing to your left, you know, and, and it, uh, it really transports you. Yeah, that major distinction between documentation and preservation is it's the hinges on the experience. And we, when we met you guys, or um, when we met you, um, Thomas, when we were in D.C. at the National Building Museum, you showed us your work with the big maze that had gone up the prior summer in the National Building Museum, where Bjarke Ingels Group had built this like human scale wooden maze that people who are visiting the museum could come and navigate and try to like go through. And, and you had the virtual reality set up to re-experience a, someone's vision of that maze. And it was very, very affecting and very amazing. And you get immediately transported through the, the um, in that case, it was the Oculus Rift technology. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what we're using. So through that, you can immediately kind of re-enter the space. But so it seems as if instead of preserving, like in the architectural sense, preserving historical elements of the physical building, you're instead preserving a very time-specific and very immediate experience of the building. How does that work with like making it accessible to different people? Are you trying to then use that information to kind of advertise to a, from a client to a general population? Or is it, um, do you have an idea of like, this will be then put in the Library of Congress for, you know, earth children 300 years later to re-experience what it was like to live in physical buildings or what, what do you imagine being like the long-term use of this type of footage well there's kind of two parts of that question is that and that's like how do you actually kind of deliver this technology as it stands at the moment and the other one is like what happens when this technology becomes or this particular format becomes outdated um what we actually do we actually go in and capture more than possible to play back at the moment it, just in terms of resolution and uh, frames per second and sound and so forth so even though that we're at the current standpoint with the Oculus, uh, you're not actually able to play back uh, the, the immersive resolution that you would need to to be almost one to one with your own, you know, retina vision. If you think, if you take a word from Apple, um, we're actually already kind of doing that in lieu of what's going to be around the corner in terms of technology. So the at the moment, we're you know we're it, the technology is very much geared towards a, 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 a passive experience, which is through the Oculus or uh, the Gear VR, which is something that's a, a new headset that's just come out between, uh, which is a partnership between Samsung and, um, and Oculus. And all these are, are literally changing at a, at a really fast rate. I mean, the installation we did last year is really outdated now compared to what we have at the moment. So again, you know, we're very much, as Thomas uh, likes to say, we're very much like technology ag agnostic. Uh, we're not, you know, we're not kind of trying to sell a specific kind of uh, technology because we're trying to future-proof ourselves for, and also if our client comes to us for, you know, whatever's around the corner. And interesting enough, you were saying about the Library of Congress uh, back last year, I mean, Thomas had a conversation about saying, well, what happens when this format becomes outdated? And we got in contact with a Swiss archivist, I get the name of the company, who actually record data onto glass. So, and it's what's known as human readable. So, you know, if you imagine it's already happening now with film, for example, where, um, you know, we ha you have typical 35 millimeter film, which goes in a can and, and it's preserved for, you know, 100, 150 years because it's chemical. But with digital data, 
you know, what happens when, say, 50 years from now, when nobody knows how to read a JPEG, you know, and it's already happening, especially, again, with just digital formats. So we were talking uh, with this company about saying, well, we could take a 360 photograph or other or or data that we, we generate and actually put it down onto onto this format so that in 50, 100 years' time, you can dig up these plates and it's actually similar to that movie Contact with Jodie Foster. It's almost like you, you kind of uh, show the met- you kind of tell the message first uh, on how to read the data and you can bring it back. So, you know, it's a, it's a good point. You know, uh, how do you keep this digital data alive? Yeah. So in answer to your question, we are thinking of the 300 years from now, Earth. Children. <laughs> Good. Think of the children. But also now. I mean, you know, I mean, really, like, you know, we want to we want to create experiences that are that are engaging and interesting to people right now. And I mean, for us, like one of the big areas that we're looking at is is exhibition. Right. And, and uh, you know, what you what you saw at the, the National Building Museum is sort of also the beginning of a, a bigger conversation there where, you know, we want to look at how, you know, in general, uh, you know, how we can impact exhibitions or installations, but also more narrowly, you know, looking at what it means to exhibit architecture, because, you know, architecture is kind of challenging to exhibit, having seen enough exhibits myself. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there's always a proxy, right? And, and so this, we're hoping again, you know, with the ambition that we have of constantly pushing forward to try and make the experience feel more and more real. The idea is to be able to bring architecture to people at exhibitions so that, you know, I mean, you don't simply look at a, you know, a display of a model or, you know, perhaps some, some photos and some text, but you're actually able to to stand within the structure itself and, and experience it and, and feel it. So, so that, you know, it's, we're kind of looking for, we want to create great experiences now, but we also want to create things that can be looked back on in the future and, and become artifacts. I think there's something interesting as well is that when you know, we go and capture an environment or building or a sense of space, is that it's very unbiased. You know, you can commission a photographer or filmmaker who will see it through his his or her eyes. And, you know, there will be a stylistic view to that. Well, what we tend to do is go in and capture something. And then after you can, after that, you can put your own spin on it. So it becomes a very unbiased way of capturing or, or looking at an environment. Yeah. So going back to Oculus Rift, it's been in the news recently that they've recently announced that they're going to be launching the consumer model in early 2016. How do you anticipate that people will start using it? And how would you like to see people using it? I mean, it's such a new device. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of confusion in the beginning about what it actually does and and what the value is. Well, they, I mean, when the first uh, development kit came out, the SDK one, probably going back about two years ago now, Oculus originally, their original standpoint was really to aim this at the gaming market. And then when 360 cameras became, became popular, we see a lot of hobbyists um, actually doing their own filmmaking in them now. And also, you know, various agencies advertising, filmmakers are trying to monetize it as well. Oculus started to realize that the just literally as a 360 video format, it was a, a really big push. Um, so we saw quite a few startups who are actually trying to create markets for that for that footage now. Um, you know, so there will be there will be the equivalent of iTunes iTunes esque places on the web where you can actually say buy this footage or download it, just the same as you would with this podcast, for example. Uh, and that's already happening. Uh, Samsung are doing that with something called Milk, and there's very various other companies that are doing it 
So you know, there will be a platform and a market uh, eventually. The Rift itself will probably be more so in the hand of gamers to start with, you know. But if it's cheap enough, you'll see people buy them. Um, the format that we shoot in is also usable in everything from the Oculus through to like Google Cardboard. So you know, you don't necessarily have to have like a three or four hundred dollar headset. You can view it in a something which will cost you five dollars as well as five hundred dollars. Yeah, and I mean, since Facebook has bought Oculus, there's a couple of other emerging areas of interest that they've expressed, which are obviously, you know, social media. There's the expectation that they'll, you know, you will converse in virtual reality, social environments at some point. But the other interesting thing that they've stated that they're looking at is Oculus for education. And that's something also that we're exploring a bit. It's something that we think down the road or you know, fairly soon could be integrated even into architecture or engineering curricula. Because, you know, there's the element, is, as we said, with this uh, technology, rather than simply, you know, reading or, or viewing projects through, you know, secondary documents, you can actually experience things. You can, for example, walk through a project with an architect and have that architect describe the project or experience in one way that we're kind of even more interested in is start to experience places through the eyes of the people who use them and actually kind of almost like a fly on the wall, just experience structures in use, which is which is something that's kind of becoming more of a trend, moving away from the pristine image and towards the, the more use case. So we're, we're, we're really curious in that too. And we've been talking to uh, a school about potentially doing something, but we're definitely going to try and play in that territory as well. We think it's a huge opportunity. So how do you think the style of representation that you guys deal with differs from the cave representation that a lot of architecture schools are diverting a little bit more attention to of like trying to represent an architectural space in a somewhat in a hybridized kind of virtual physical reality where instead of relying on an individual headset or sometimes an individual medium, the person or the viewer is inserted into kind of a physical space that then has a few virtual elements that can be adapted or changed to make the person feel like they're in a different scenario. And so there's, in, in my mind, there's kind of been these two kind of different representations of virtual reality, one of which is where you're inserted into a physical space where there's some which doesn't feel strange enough where you have like this thing mounted on your head to distract you and you get to like kind of walk around and you're not you're not encumbered. But the actual representation isn't as slick and, and crisp as something that you can represent on a headset. What that is then limited by whatever mobility is built into the actual program. So how do you guys because I, I also know that CAVE has been used by a lot of architectural schools as means of education and kind of projecting spaces and understanding what they might be like in the reality. So have you guys worked with that technology at all? And how do you see the educational elements of both playing out? Um, yeah, I played around with uh, this not far from from uh, Toronto, uh, the Waterloo, which is a uh, Waterloo in Cambridge, uh, which is uh, houses quite a, a few startup companies. They uh, they have a cave up there that I, I played around with a couple of years ago now. And the blunt answer is that, um, you know, something that costs half a million dollars versus $500 for a very similar experience, that would be the, that's where basically I would, I would go. And also the cave is, um, it's a very mono experience. Um, you can't really, it's, it's not very social. You know, it's a very mm. mono experience where one person goes into it. You know, these things are incredibly expensive as well. And in order for the, in order, in also in terms of delivering the content to something like the cave, um, it's, 
if you backtrack and look at, say, 360 video, you can disseminate that in a lot of different ways. You know, you can do like the, the $10 version up to you know, the 4K version. So it's scalable, which gives you a, a, a wider range of audience. You know, you can have in from non, non-profit through to, through, through to corporate who can experience this. Whereas the cave is very much in a territory where it's in a room that's owned by a school or an organization. Um, and it's very hard to capitalize on that experience. Yeah. Yeah, we we really like. I mean, the whole projection aspect is is really fascinating, and we we do explore that. Right now, we're kind of focused on, like I said, our our, our key objective is to deliver the best experience possible. So whether that's a preservation experience or whether we're looking at, uh, and we haven't really spoken about this yet, but looking at taking spaces and transforming them in some way, the headset route right now is virtual reality headset is the best experience or the best way of delivering that experience. But, you know, I mean, things like AR, I mean, AR right now, we still, we just, we don't find it to be, it, it's still, we want to deliver as real a feeling as possible because that's where you, you know, they always use the terminology hacking the brain with this stuff. And the VR technology is is the closest or doing the best job of hacking the brain and making you feel like you're there. AR still very much feels like, uh, you know, a computer game creature wandered into a set somewhere in your house. And the projection stuff, it, it's to Anthony's point, it's, it's just a bit distant. It doesn't feel, it feels like you're, you know, someone dropped a small planetarium over your head, right? So, <laughs> so it's not quite there either. But that said, the way the technology is going, I think in a few years, you're going to start to see both AR and projection become a lot more realistic. And then we'll probably use that technology a lot more. Do you have a vision of what that technology, you know, hardware or software will be once we're not limited by by where we're at right now with today's technology? Yeah, I mean, without getting too technical, I mean, there's there is something called the, what's called the HTC Vive, which is another headset manufacturer to come that's going to be um, going public towards the end of the year. And their setup is slightly different from the Oculus in the ten- terms of that you actually can put these little trackers on the wall. So you have a, this is essentially, this is the holodeck. Um, you know, you can actually move around the space as opposed to being a static three, 360 experience. And we'll be looking next at saying, well, something called what's known as light field technology, which is actually capturing almost like slices of, imagery as opposed to video which allows you to kind of actually move around them and gives you gives you a true 3d depth as well but it's all capitalizing on the pretty much the same places where we are now so you know we're us as a as a company that does this we're going to be waiting for these things to kind of slowly reveal themselves and as opposed to trying to pursue them from a a research and development point of view first and when anthony says slowly he means quite quickly because these things are changing very fast And that's one of the reasons we talk about being technology agnostic is because the pace of change is so quick now. As Anthony said, the technology we used several months ago is is out of date now. And it's interesting. There's a show up in Canada here on CBC, our national broadcaster. It's called Ideas. And I think it was last year, they interviewed a guy from MIT called Andrew McAfee, who he's doing artificial intelligence research. And uh, I believe he wrote a book called Race Against the Machine, which sounds very dystopian. But he actually did this fascinating thing where he was looking at Moore's Law, which is, you know, the doubling of uh, processing power every 18 to 24 months, depending on who 
who says. And he went back and looked at this analogy of, I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's an analogy of the, uh, the, the person who invented chess. And the tale goes that the, the emperor, the local emperor, called in this, this inventor and said, this is a fabulous game and what can, we, what can I give you in, in order to, to pay you back for your work here? And, and he, what the inventor asked for was a grain of rice on the first square of the chessboard, two on the second, four on the third, and so on and so forth. And as the story goes, the, the king said, well, or the emperor said, well, this is, you know, fabulous. It's, it's, uh, I, I can do this. This is no big deal whatsoever. But it turns out that the laws of doubling, by the time you get to the 64 square, that's a lot of rice. And sometimes the tale suggests that the inventor of chess was beheaded because of his insolence. But anyway, McAfee, what he did was he looked at this and he said, well, okay, if you know, you look at the chessboard, basically when you get to the square 32 on the, on the 64 on the chessboard, it's still pretty, you know, it's, it's not some manageable amount of rice in the rice scenario. But from there on out, it gets kind of crazy kind of quickly. And they went back, and McAfee and his partner, and they went back and they looked at computing technology using the same analogy. And what they've come up with is they say that we're now at the 32nd square or just past it. And so that's why they theorize we're seeing all these crazy advances in technologies. And we're, you know, you, you, you look in the media every day, there seems to be something new. So, you know, when we look at that, we look at technology and if that's the way it's moving and it's accelerating at that speed, it almost is making technology, it's something you use and then you move on and you find the next technology and you use that and you move on. So for us, I mean, as a design studio, we're more focused on creating the experiences and the stories and then grabbing whatever technology is around at that moment to enable them and tell them in a really compelling way. Well, considering this pace of change in, in technology and where we're at in the overall history of, of uh, things and the fact that you're technology agnostic, it seems like it would be quite a challenge to archive your media in a way that will be usable in any given type of technology that's that comes about in the future. How is it that you archive your your media and your data in order to be used? Yeah, that's uh, briefly mentioned earlier. I'll um, try to explain it a little bit more in depth. Um, we record to a, a, a well-known video format at the moment, for example, but already that format will might be, I say, obsolete like two years from now. Uh, within 10 years, you might not even find a PC or a, a desktop that will actually read that format. So, and it's, you know, it's already happened with various formats. I mean, you know, you try and get find somebody now that can read a, an old five and a half inch floppy disk, for example, you know, and uh, show my age now. So, you know, the one of the mandates we have is like, how do we actually kind of future-proof that? You know, and you make it completely format um, unbiased. And that was why, one way we had it with this uh, Swiss company where we were looking at uh, archiving on glass, which basically it's not magnetic, it's not optical. Uh, it is optical because it's glass, but by optical, it, it's not an optical like a CD format, for example. So, you know, this thing lasts for like 500 years and um, you actually can see the, the binary data printed on the glass. You can actually read it yourself. But what about the file formats? Do you see the formatting having long-term life? Yeah, we actually kind of capture it at a lot larger resolution than we can handle at the moment. So again, when the technology catches up, we'll be in a situation where we can utilize that. And you know, the example I said earlier about the movie Contact, where you know there's a message that comes to Earth and they actually have to decipher what the language is before they can build this, uh, this machine. It's essentially the same thing. 
you know, 500 years from now, 300 years from now, you know, what's an MP4 format? You know, what's a H.264? You know, these things are going to be obsolete. I'd like to ask a little bit about then specifically a client that I believe you're currently working with, the Glasgow School of Art that you're doing a project with the um, Macintosh Library that recently suffered a pretty disastrous fire, I believe sometime last year, and is currently being discussed how to restore it, but it's still in ruins. Are you doing a project with them currently? Is that correct? That was a proposal. We actually worked, we spoke with them, I guess it was late last year about that. We didn't end up proceeding with it, but it was it was interesting because it was, I mean, <laughs> this sort of gets back to the preservation aspect, but after that fire reached out and spoke with them for a while about the notion of capturing the ruin of the building itself, which is kind of a weird concept, I guess. But nevertheless, it was it was the idea was essentially that that's part of the history of the building, you know. And and ultimately, we can't, you know, you know, beyond the, the documentation that happened with photography, photographs, and uh, and things of that nature, we don't have any any sort of record of that building. So it's not like we can go back and use our technique on the building pre-fire, which is kind of an interesting conundrum, right? Because because you want to preserve things, but often sometimes it's too late to preserve it by the time you you want to. Um, but we did talk to them about going in and actually preserving the, the burnt out landscape and actually going in with their, because they had uh, archaeologists going in and, and trying to salvage uh, different uh, aspects of the library and the hen run. So we were going to get them to go in and actually shoot with our cameras uh, before people were even allowed in without hazmat. And the idea would be then that we could recreate that experience as part of the school's, not only archive, but they, you know, there's a lot of visitors that visit the school itself and that they'd be able to experience what happened to the building because it is going to be restored. I believe they've chosen the architects now, but post-restoral, uh, restoration, sorry, it'll be, uh, it would have been an interesting experience for people to to understand where where it was, you know, and what happened to it and, and to actually be able to experience it. And there's something, you know, with with one thing that this really talked about with, with VR and with immersive experiences like this is the ability to generate empathy. It's something that's been discussed a lot. And I think it's something that could be actually maybe extended even to buildings themselves. People do have emotional connections to buildings. And, you know, just as we mourn the loss of people, I mean, you know, obviously not to the same degree, but we do, people do emotionally connect with, with places structures, things that, that have been part of their lives, right? And I think that building in particular, as you saw, I don't know if you're following the social feeds during the fire itself, but it was, I mean, people were really heartbroken. And so the notion of being able to allow people to connect empathetically with a building is is kind of interesting. And, and we've been playing with this notion of preserving ruin for a while. I mean, and, and it, you know, it's, it runs the risk of falling into sort of the ruin porn thing but uh but we're not really going to that angle we also talked with uh and with uh miami marine stadium earlier about doing a preservation where we would actually preserve the ruin there and that that place has been in ruin gosh for a long time i can't remember how long but you know decades and in a way it's kind of a fascinating structure i don't know if you're familiar with it but it's it's a beautiful modernist you know, stadium right on the on the waterfront, and it's it's fallen into ruin and become quite a mecca for graffiti artists. So it's it's kind of neat that way. And we actually proposed there to capture that ruin and then 
once they renovate it, because they are in the process also of renovating that, to once again reinsert that. But this time we were talking not just in terms of using a headset. This gets more to your other point. We were talking about actually using projection to, to map the ruin back onto the place and even creating some sort of interesting night lighting scheme. So there, you know, we may be progressing with that. We'll see what happens down the road once they get through their fundraising time frame. But, uh, but yeah, this notion of preserving ruin, it's just, it's something that, that we're kind of interested in because it is, it can be such a big part of a, a history of a structure, particularly significant ones. Well, regarding empathy and within specifically a burned out old, wonderful library, I'm sure olfactory sensors would actually be a huge thing to trigger people's ability to like go back into these spaces. If you can yeah. get both the smell of just being in a, <laughs> in a, in a library, plus also being in a burnt out space, I think that'd be incredibly affecting. Yeah, it'd be amazing, wouldn't it? And our first notion of smelling architecture, because we, you know, we, we thought through this a little bit, but right at the beginning when we were conversing with, with Billy Chen, she was one of her first things that she said was but but how will you smell the building how will you smell the the scent of the timber on a hot summer day and it was something that put us back and we sat there for a minute we thought yeah smells i mean it's probably if you asked a layperson off the street like hey is it important for you to be able to smell a building um they'd probably say no i'm, I'm guessing but the notion of smell is really important, you know, we don't think about it, but it, it really, even though buildings, we think of them as being very neutral, but they do have, they do have smells, right? Especially, yeah, when they've been burnt out, that would be very particularly pungent. <laughs> but so that you're also able to, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the pieces that you've been discussing that you've been approaching as a possible preservation or activation site. These have all been kind of from your guys' direction. You you have been finding these projects and you see places where you'd like to work. Is that kind of how your your work is progressing at this point that you get to kind of choose which which scenarios you'd like to preserve or, or activate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, I mean, choose. <laughs> We're early on in the game. And the reality is, is most people aren't even thinking this way. Or most people haven't even really contemplated this sort of concept. So particularly from a preservation perspective, on the other side, it's a little different because there is some, you know, and the other, by the other side of our business, I mean more, you know, the potential to do architectural, you know, visualization and, and uh, even documentation, that sort of thing. And the architectural side is one thing, but on the preservation side, it's, it's a strange dance because you kind of need to, without being like an ambulance chaser, you need to kind of understand what's happening with significant buildings out in the world. And then, and then kind of reach out and see if there's interest. And the reality is, is at the beginning right now, I mean, it's most people, it's 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 a hard concept for them to get their hand, heads around. But, you know, as we do more and more discussions and, you know, we're talking about doing some, uh, both doing some stuff with the National Trust for Historic Preservation in Washington. But uh, as we, you know, do more things, I think people will start to get the idea and start to recognize the value more. And it'll be less us going out to people and hopefully more people seeking us out, hopefully even before it gets to a, a moment of crisis, right? Because often, I mean, the, the crisis can happen really quickly, as we saw, you know, with the, the recent earthquake in, in Kathmandu. And it's it's just a shame when, when we lose things that we care about without having given them the proper, you know, documentation or, or preservation, as we like to to, to say. So would you say that you have kind of a preservationist ag agenda? Like what is, what are the kind of projects that you find yourselves drifting towards and wanting to work with? We, we like um, projects that go somewhere in terms of framing, I say the time as well. 
we had a similar conversation with uh, the Battersea Development Corporation uh, back in the uh, beginning of the year, um, as well as going into the to the old station itself and preserving it from a historic point of view because they're about just to kind of start subdividing it into, into condos, is the notion, the fact that you can also use that material to say, what what did this place look like uh, you know, pre-World War II yeah. or during World War II or after? Um, yeah. Or even now, because you know, by the time the natural scheme is finished, we're probably looking at maybe five, seven years from now. So, you know, when you have that conversation, but where you can take it as well, whether it's uh, an immersive experience, whether it's uh, based on the notion of um, historic preservation or um, or simply just an experience. Maybe it's something that sits in an installation or in a gallery that is a revenue generator. You know, all these kind of opportunities present themselves if you can get in and, you know, capture that material at an early stage and start the conversation. Early. Yeah. Well, yeah, I wouldn't say we're like hardcore preservationists you know i mean we're not Cedric price on the other end either i mean it's it's not about recording and then knock it down to us it's a fascinating it, it was sort of like i said it was the way that we started to think or frame our our way of using this technology on the built environment but it's really expanded since then and uh and so yeah i mean it's as anthony says it's about it, we look for projects that have interesting stories to tell and, and where we create experiences that are really compelling. And, and, you know, I mean, with the big maze that you guys saw, like the big part that really excited us about that was doing something contextual there. You know, it wasn't just simply capturing the maze and then showing it to people in St. Louis. You know, it was, it was the idea of actually creating something where you would stand in this place and then put on a headset and then that place was transformed. So to us, it's about, it's about taking what is and adapting it, shifting it, augmenting it, you know, and turning it into something really compelling, right? So there is that pure preservation aspect, but but it, in no means sort of drives us. Is there anything that you guys are working on right now that you can tell us about? Hmm. Well, I mean, one of the things we can talk about, this is um, something we've been working on for a little bit. It's a little bit different than anything we've been discussing before. It's uh, essentially, I guess we can call it immersive information. We're working on taking data and putting it into the built environment for people to experience. So it's kind of hard to describe, I guess, in a way, but it's like the example we're using right now and what I'm currently writing about is we took, I don't know if last year you heard when Bill Gates retweeted about the amount of cement that was used in China over the three-year period between 2011 and 2013. Mm-hmm. More than uh, the U.S. has ever used, I believe. Yeah, it was, it was I think, about 1.5, 1. 1.47, I think, times the amount the U.S. had used the entire previous century. So okay. not all time, but previous century, still 100 years versus three years, pretty significant. Anyway, we went back and actually took a look at that and are now working on putting that back into a virtual environment. Essentially, we took a, a large urban park and we scaled down the concept. So it's no longer 6.6 gigatons, which actually, if you scale it, is pretty huge. Wired did a, uh, a visualization to try and show the entire 6.6 gigatons. And it, it just looks like this massive block towering over Chicago. It's very hard to get the scale. So what we tried to do is, is bring it down to a more human scale level. And so we did a five minute period and have placed cement blocks in this park representing a five minute period. Yeah, 48,000 tons. 
Was it that much? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, it's an area that, that we're doing a couple other explorations like that. It's something that we really think is going to be very interesting. Again, it kind of almost gets back to that empathy thing, but data is very hard to understand for the most part a lot of the time. I should say understand, to really comprehend. You know, It's very abstract, particularly data, whether it's scale or large scale. You know, Often they'll say, well, it's as big as this many bathtubs of water in California that you guys are trying to save or, or something. But it's hard for people to actually understand what that means or, or in an abstract way. So we're trying to use this medium, this immersive medium, to make information really um, understandable and relatable for people. And it's it's really compelling. I mean, the, the tests that we did just recently that I'm, I'm going to post about are, are, are amazing. It's really neat to see, to, to really feel and experience data in a totally different way. So that's so that's one thing we're working on. Another thing that uh, we're in early stages with is we've got a, a test that we're running down in Texas, uh, we're hoping quite soon, that we've been doing some prep for on, and this is a little bit different because it's it's built environment, but it's it's a bit of a sidestep, but it's... Uh, kind of the inverse, really. Yeah, it's, it's looking at... Um, we're, we're both film buffs too. We're really into film. And so one of the things that we're exploring is the notion of taking film and reinserting it or locations and, and sets and actually taking films and putting them back into sets so you can experience films in the built environment that was created for them. Again, it's kind of a complex idea to get your head around unless you've experienced it. But when you experience it, it's really cool. And we're doing we're doing something similar actually for an art gallery, looking at art in an immersive environment without going into too much detail. It's a similar type of thing where it's about taking objects and inserting them back into their original environments. And it's kind of neat because you really get a different perspective and a different understanding when you see these objects or, or films or, or whatever they may be. That sounds like the craziest 3D movie I've ever, I could ever put my, my. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. It's, it's neat though. Sounds very cool. Well, let us know how that goes. I would love to, if I can even pay for a ticket, I would happily do so. I don't know what phase it, I'm sure you're not close to production quite yet, but sounds amazing. Well, next time we're down, we'll bring some stuff for you guys. Yeah. Excellent. Well, this is very, very cool stuff that uh, I'm sure that our listeners are going to be really interested in hearing more about. So hopefully you guys can keep us updated on on what you're working on. And uh, maybe we'll be able to share some of the work that you've done on our website along with the launch of, of this show. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for uh, talking with us today. Yeah, no, thanks for having us. All right. Well, make sure to uh, check out our show notes. We're going to be putting some links together to give you a better idea of what the third fate's work is like visually uh, now that you've heard them talk about it definitely recommend uh, checking that out all right on to endorsements what do we have this week amelia what, what's your endorsement of the week my endorsement is also from berkeley california where i used to live when i went to school a few years ago so i have a soft spot for everything in berkeley i wanted to endorse our coverage of the announcement date for the opening of Diller Scafidio and Renfro's new Berkeley Art Museum slash Pacific Film Archive, which is going to open on um, January 31st of next year. I spent a lot of time as a student in the, both the Berkeley Art Museum and the Pacific Film Archive. Um, they're kind of tandem institutions that used to be in the same building and then were split due to seismic concerns of the old building. The PFA was relocated to a smaller facility. And so I'm excited to see in this new design that is going up in downtown Berkeley that it, both of those institutions will be reunited and will be back under the same roof. 
the actual design of the building, I'm kind of less excited by. I, I only have a few strange renderings that are just look really bland at first sight to really comment on, but I'm excited for it. I think that downtown Berkeley as a relatively sleepy downtown area of an otherwise city built around a world-class research university could use something like this specifically in downtown. The uh, museum used to be also on the periphery of campus, but in a little bit more of a tucked away area. So I'll point people to that. Our coverage of the opening of the New Berkeley Art Museum slash Pacific Film Archive by Dealer Scafidio and Renfro. Donna, what do you have to endorse? I wanted to endorse a, uh, an article that just went up on the website today by Nicholas Crody, pointed to an LA Times article about a gorilla tea house popping up in LA's Griffith Park. And apparently this is a little tea house that uh, some art group has built out of salvaged burnt timbers, I believe, from some recent fires. They gave some certain select audience members or people a uh, an invitation that was laser cut onto a piece of wood to go and find in Griffith Park at dawn that to come and see this installation. They didn't tell anyone about it. It was all done secretly. The building itself looks fantastic. I love this notion of sort of pop-up unexpected art pieces happening in places where people aren't aware. But I also wanted to point to a architect magazine does on Tuesday afternoons, a architect chats, Twitter chat. And the one this week was on pavilions in general. And they just talked about temporary structures and pavilions with the things we talked about last week, the new Serpentine opening up and the the, uh, PS1 opening up. So I think this notion of temporary structures and the kind of responsibility that artists and architects have when we put any built thing out in the world, no matter how temporary it is, I think that something like this gorilla tea house in Griffith Park might be a good test for that. For how well will it fare if it's something that's unofficial? Will people beat it up? Will they graffiti it? I'm really curious about all of the questions that come up around this kind of tactical urbanism installation work. So we'll see. But it looks like a lovely structure. I can say that at least. Yeah. And I hope to see it in the flesh. We are based in Los Angeles and Griffith Park is one of LA's like most treasured public resources. So I'm hoping to actually check it out. Hopefully I can get to it before it's <laughs> unceremoniously taken apart. Um, I just want to add one more thing to my Berkeley endorsement is that if anyone is in Berkeley and able to visit the old Berkeley Art Museum, which is this amazing, gigantic, concrete, brutalist structure designed by Mario Chiampi, maybe pronouncing that, Chiampi, built in 1970. Go to it. It is amazing. It is an amazing interior and a very specific gallery experience, one that is like I've never seen in any other similar or larger scale museum. And it really just is a spectacular building that the fate of which is undecided. It's really seismically vulnerable. <laughs> and in a city like Berkeley, that's a huge concern. I believe the Hayward Fault is like 200 yards from the museum. So it definitely is um, is vulnerable to uh, seismic risks. But if you can check it out if you're in Berkeley, definitely do so before it may no longer be there. Ken, do you have anything to endorse? Yeah, along with my uh, my rant today about um, <laughs> about the corridor. You know, as podcasters may be aware, I'm a particular fan of, of two incredibly talented professionals, uh, one who is an architect and one who uh, I think very shortly uh, will be an architect. Mitch McEwen has a, a project that she's working on out of Detroit. It's called House Opera. I think she mentioned it. She bought a house in Detroit. They're looking to fix it up and create a, an art performance space. Right now on uh, Patronicity, it's, I think it's a um, kind of crowdfunding site for this kind of work. They've raised the funds that they were looking for, but you have another six hours to kind of help fund it. And I'm sure they will take funding after the six hours, because obviously you won't hear this until tomorrow. It's a great project. She's a kick-ass designer focused on, you know, community issues and design and 
pulling all those things together in a, in a really intelligent way and look forward to seeing that project come to fruition. And then the other person that I really wanted to mention was uh, Susan Surface. She's another, I've been a particular fan of Susan Surface for a very long time. I'm kind of a shy fanboy. I've kind of met her, but I really didn't talk to her because I was kind of, you know, I think I was a 36-year-old shy guy. But she is working with uh, an AIA initiative out of Seattle called uh design public. And she's doing exactly what I think should be done in cases like this building in New York City. She is uh, bringing design professionals, the public, making those connections, having the hard discussions uh, that need to be had around um, public art and public architecture. And she's putting her her talents to fantastic use in, in, in this regard. And um, I couldn't be happier to know at least these two people in, in the design profession, knowing that they're doing this kind of work. So... Those are my two big endorsements today. Well, nice endorsements, Ken. We've already had Mitch on the podcast. So for those of you interested in in listening to more about her work, make sure to check out that episode. And uh, we should try to get Susan on. Definitely. For sure. So, so Ken, you can break your shy guy routine. <laughs> we'll introduce you. She was working the door. She was working the door at, um, I think, either pianos or the knitting room. And I recognized her and I walk up and I go, are you Susan Surface? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I just <laughs> kind of meekly <laughs> walked away. <laughs> great. That'll be a great opener anecdote for you to uh, introduce her with. I, I'm going to make you jealous, Ken, because not only do I own a piece of Susan Service's art that hangs in my powder room where it's completely appropriate, but she has she has slept at my house twice. So yeah, I'm I'm tight with her. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah, I I first remember her. She was doing a portfolio for Yale Graduate School, and she shared it with me. And I've never met anyone so exceedingly talented as Susan Surface. She's a photographer. She's a model. I mean, she's done. I mean, she's done everything. And and I mean, I'm I'm like mush when it comes to talking <laughs> about Susan. She's the, she's the best. <laughs> and her last name is Surface. Which is just the cherry on top. She's got the best architect <laughs> name ever in history. What I have of hers is a photo, and it's when the Architecture Sucks shirts first came out. It's her in the Architecture Sucks shirt. Nice. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to everybody for listening. As always, if you have any questions or comments, you can reach us on Twitter with hashtag Arconnect Sessions, or you can send us an email to connect at Arconnect.com. Thanks for listening, and talk to everybody next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.